Welcome to this eighth in our series of Growing Disciples Daily Devotionals in the Book of Acts. In this series, we're flying at a fairly high level. We want to pick up the major points in the landscape of the spread of the Christian gospel, beginning in Jerusalem and crossing boundary after boundary to the ends of the earth. Already, we've noticed in this spread of the gospel that God uses a variety of means to connect people to the truth of the Christian gospel. In each circumstance, it seems that God uh, empowers his message and the style of communication to best fit the audience. Uh, the truth about the death, the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, that doesn't change, but the way that that message comes and is given weight and verified does seem to change. So when Paul was on Cyprus addressing the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus, the gospel came with demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power overthrowing the deceptive sorcerer, Elimas. But later in that same chapter, addressing the Jewish synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, Paul preached in the manner of the Pharisees, exploring the depths of the Old Testament promises of God concerning the Messiah. There he proved from the scriptures that Jesus had to be the promised saviour, the promised descendant of King David. So in that same chapter, God uses Paul differently with two diverse audiences to proclaim the same gospel. The substance is fixed, the style is adaptive. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul is in Athens, once again preaching the same gospel, but now very differently to another different group of people. We're in Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So as Paul had often done in a new location, he spoke first with the Jews and the God-fearers of the town, usually at the synagogue. But not exclusively. It seems that Paul was so eager to tell the news of Jesus Christ to anyone who would listen, whether it be in the marketplace or house to house or, or wherever. And in Athens, this kind of discussion found a ready audience. So verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Now, you probably know that the Areopagus was the ancient public court on the northwestern side of the Acropolis in Athens. Uh, the Romans uh, called it Mars Hill. Uh, over centuries, it served as a courtroom, uh, a place for lawmaking and government, uh, a meeting place for statesmen. It seems that in Paul's time, it was also a place for public lectures and debate with the assembled magistrates and nobility of Athens, both male and female. After hearing a little of Paul's message, they say in verse 20, 
you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, it's a great opening to a sermon, right? Uh, you worship something, but you don't even know what it is. Uh, well, Athenians, let me enlighten you in your ignorance. Uh, by the way, for Stoics, ignorance was a cardinal sin. So, okay, that's the sound of some feathers being ruffled. But I bet Paul certainly had everyone's attention after that opening to his sermon. He continues in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So you can see Paul begins his sermon on familiar territory to the Greeks. You worship gods, you acknowledge the divine, and you, you recognize human accountability in relation to the divine. Paul then references some of their own respected poets and prophets, probably quoting the Stoic poet Aratus of Soli. Uh, all this to build common ground, all points that could also have been supported by the Jewish scriptures as well. Uh, but next, he moves from the known to the unknown. Here comes the new bit, then slightly more controversial uh, for the Greeks. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God looked, overlooked such ignorance, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So the outcome of Paul's preaching is not dissimilar to other places. Some believe it seemed that Dionysius and Damaris were, they were heavy hitters among Athens' elite. But others do not believe. Instead, they mock Paul, perhaps because they don't understand what's being said. 
as Christians reflecting back on this event recorded for us in Scripture. I think there's a fair bit to consider. So uh, today I'm just simply going to suggest a few avenues that you might want to explore in your own prayers and in your own thoughts. Uh, first one, when we speak of the Lord Jesus to our peers and to our colleagues or our family, are we prepared for a variety of responses? Some may mock us, some won't understand, but some whom God has chosen, they will believe, perhaps remarkably or unexpectedly, but clearly by the hidden work of the Holy Spirit. Second, when we speak of the Lord Jesus, are we mindful of where our conversation partners are beginning? What are their presuppositions about God? How did they even arrive at those? What might they already believe that is consistent with biblical thinking where there might be some opportunities to step from the known to the unknown? Of course, our understanding of our conversation partner is going to be requiring some careful listening and some thoughtful questions before we get to the heart of the good news about the Lord Jesus. A conversation like this is its very different to a lecture or a sermon or that classic Bible bashing admonishment for which Christians are renowned. I want to commend to us all such conversations as a great pathway for us to follow. Third, and implied in what we just said, the form and the style of our communication is going to be flexible and it's going to be tailored to our audience, but the substance of the gospel does not change. Fourth, and before all of this, we, we can't fail to notice Paul's eagerness to share the gospel. What's he doing in Athens? Well, he's actually just waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch him up on his journey. But Paul doesn't waste time. He doesn't imagine he's just killing time until his mates arrive. Instead, he has a passion for Jesus that is infectious, that it's not subdued even in a foreign culture. May we have such a passion, such a concern for those we know who need Jesus. Fifth, final observation, Jesus is Lord. Through Paul, it is God who is addressing the assembled philosophers, magistrates and elites at the Areopagus. Paul doesn't see it as his wisdom on trial, nor does his reputation matter to him. No matter what other people think, Paul yearns for anyone and everyone, no matter what their social standing, to know the Lord Jesus by whatever means. So perhaps we might begin by examining our own hearts in relation to each of these five avenues of thought. Is there one of these that catches your attention? Is there something here that you particularly would like to pray about? I leave these for your reflection and for your prayers.